If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Pastons were one of Norfolk's most prominent families. From around 1380 to 1750, they rose through the ranks to become major players in Britain, with stakes in the dynamic politicking of the Tudor and Stuart courts. But what really makes this family stand out is the fact that they left a huge collection of letters and documents, sharing everyday details about their lives. Emily Briffitt spoke to Dr Karen Smith, co-director of the Paston Footprints Project, to uncover what the so-called Paston letters can tell us about the wider cultural, social and political past. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hello, Emily. We are going to be delving into a world of late medieval and perhaps even a bit of Tudor and Stuart England, all looked at through the lens of one family. So I guess we should probably introduce them. Who are the Pastons? The Pastons are a Norfolk family that are really known from about 1380 to about 1730. And they were a mixture of farmers, merchants, lawyers, landholders. But the reason we really know them is that, one, they are major social climbers of the day, but also, two, they wrote letters. Now, we know about them through what have been known as their past and letters. So what is so special about these as a source and why why are the letters so important? That can be answered very quickly and simply with the fact that they have survived. The Paston letters are the earliest and largest known collection of family letters written in English. And before that, we have letters in royal courts and, and odd rogue letters here and there. But this is the biggest collection of family letters, which means it's the history beyond kings and queens. We get access to what would otherwise have been a lost voice of the Middle Ages. And the first one that we have in the collection dates to 1418. And in the medieval collection, there are over a thousand of these letters that have survived. 
One question to ask is, how did they survive? How have we still got them today? Through a bit of luck and serendipity, but also thanks to antiquarians. The letters, the family that are writing are very transactional letters and they're dealing with uh, the different events of the day and their social and political and economic issues. And therefore the family think these might be quite important to keep, particularly one, one key figure, Margaret Paston. And she thinks these are quite important because we might need to use them as reference or political documents. But happily in among them, there's a lot of personal correspondence as well. They were collected by the family and kept in dusty cupboard in Oxnead Hall. And it was only when the family fell into disruin that an antiquarian attended the crumbling hall and found these thousands of letters. And unfortunately, many have been destroyed because they've been left in derelict ruins. But through the work of antiquarians leading to John Fenn really being able to identify the significance and presenting them to the king, this is in the early 18th century, they became publicly known and have remained in print ever since. How many letters are we actually talking about here? Hmm, That's a very good question. Um, There are just over 1,000 documents from the Middle Ages and the primary feature of those documents are letters. But we also have two other later collection of letters and these aren't commonly known because everybody thinks of them as the earliest collection. Well, The Pastons didn't stop writing letters at the end of the 15th century. They kept going. And unfortunately, we only have a few documents from the 16th century, but there are two more major collections in the 17th century, which means we end up with over 2,000 letters overall across the 300 years. Wow, that's an incredible number of letters. It's almost like an archive in itself, just of this family. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think we're probably going to come back to these later collections later. But what kind of content do we find in the letters? Does this differ depending on who's writing and when? I'm going to respond directly with the voice of one of the Pastons to your question. And this is from Robert Paston to his wife, Rebecca. And this is from 1678, but it really reflects the collection as a whole. Robert says to his wife, I gasp after your letters every day. Your conversation by pen is the pleasantest thing in the world to me. And I think that's important because they are personal letters between husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings. So, of course, in terms of content, we get family dynamics, some of them really tender and loving, such as what we've just heard, but also squabbles as well. And we we see the full family dynamics as well as a bit of neighbourly gossip in the letters. However, The function of the letters are really transactional. So the main content that we find in the letters, beyond those glimpses of of personalities, is that they're concerned with their business and public affairs, particularly when they're away from home at the London law courts and when they're conducting trade. They are merchants, they are landholders, they have to deal with their tenants. 
also we see glimpses of them while they're off at Cambridge University studying or even in prison due to debt or political allegiances. So we see that kind of content. There's one other thing I'd really like to draw attention to, Emily, and that is maybe this somewhat surprising fact that it's not just letters from the men, but also letters from the women. So we see that while their husbands are off on the battlefields or in the law courts, They're the ones that are managing the estates and the tenants and family affairs such as marriage negotiations and even book lending in gentry circles and family shopping. So there's a whole mixture, it's a real insight into what the family dynamics are like at the time. These are all points that we're really going to touch on as we talk. You've obviously worked a lot with the collection itself, so you must really feel that you come to know these people almost. Oh, absolutely. They they feel like, I feel like I've got a very extended family because you're right, you do see the personalities and you, you see collections also across many years. So some of them, you've got letters back and forth from husbands and wives over 20 or 30 years and such likes. And also you get insight into continuing narratives and continuing personalities such as sons, the John Pastons rebelling against their father, who's also called John Paston. And so it's really fascinating. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So I think we should probably have a bit of context in here. We should probably chart the main narrative of the Paston life, the Paston family. As you mentioned, they were real social climbers. They grew from a family of farmers in a village in Norfolk to this great 
landowning family in just a matter of generations. So can you just chart a few of the core moments in the timeline of the family? Using education and good business sense and arranged marriages, those are the key narratives of the of the rise of the family. But it begins with Clement Paston, a husbandman at the end of the 14th century, who has a small land holding, as you say, in the village of Paston, which is in North Norfolk. And what's remarkable about his story is that he worked hard to send his only son to the University of Cambridge. And given his social background, although he did marry well, but given his social background, it's unusual feature to send his son at this stage to Cambridge. His son worked diligently and became a lawyer. And that's really where, the, if you like, their wheel of fortune was really spun at this point. What happens next is they start to acquire land over, across Norfolk, including but not limited to Norwich, Paston, Cromer, Bacton, Munsley, North Walsham, Oxnead, Gresham, Durham, Blowfield, Caister and Binham. That's a lot. It basically, if you're not familiar with Norfolk, you're talking about almost half of the lands across Norfolk. In a really small period of time, within just about 50 to 80 years, within three generations of the family. So Clement's son, William, really starts developing those land holdings and develops a manor house at Paston. And then we have his sons, John Paston I. And these are perhaps getting into the really well-known medieval figures now. You've got John Paston I, who marries upwards and marries very well into the Motby family, who are big landholders in Hertfordshire as well as Norfolk and Suffolk. And they have a good number of children, including John Paston II. And of course, you'd also name your other son, John Paston III, as you do. And it was actually after the godparents. That's why we get the same Christian names for the children. What's significant, there's a turning point in the story between John Paston II and John Paston III. And we're right in the middle of the 15th century now. John Paston II, named after his father, is the son due to inherit um, and, and become the major landholder. And so he's sent off for a good education and he starts to work for the king in the battlefields. Unfortunately, he dies of the plague. And so all of a sudden the family line is rewritten and the younger son, John III, becomes the major family line from this point forward. And he was a little bit more rebellious against the father. And although he did get a good education too, and also became uh, you know, a major figure in the court and on the battlefields, it wasn't expected of him. And so we see an opening up of the kind of family dynamics between father and son with them. But that takes us into towards the end of the 15th century. And then what starts to happen is through marriages of the other brothers and sisters, the Norfolk family becomes really quite prominent across all the major landowning families of the day. And as a result, we have different uncles and brothers starting to become quite prominent in the letters. And we have a later Clement Paston, Admiral Clement Paston, who has a major role in the Navy and in the Army. We have the first Earl of Yarmouth uh, and we have a number of MPs. And 
we end up with um, Robert Paston at Oxnead Hall, who, by the 17th century, has become a member of the Royal Philosophical Society and also believes he will find the golden elixir of life and is really interested in alchemy. Problem is, of course, he can't make gold. And he spends a lot of family fortunes due to that. He actually sets up a laboratory in his own Paston Manor home because they're now living in Oxnead at this stage. And the upshot is that he also wants to curry favour with the king. And we see him travelling around the world, him and his father gathering lots of treasures and then hosting a major party for the king at the home And they add on extra rooms, as you do if the king is visiting, extra tapestries, extra food, and he basically makes them go bankrupt. And that's the problem. But it's also mixed in with who, during the War of the Roses, are you supporting? Are you supporting the Lancastrian or the Yorkist side? And different money and and it has to be paid to get different members out of the prison, depending on which political allegiance they have. And so it's a family narrative and it's a narrative about personalities who influence the story. But it's also tied into those wider social political dynamics of the day. It seems a narrative absolutely full of ups and downs. How common would you say they were as a family at this time? A couple of responses to that. They're not unique in writing letters. What's unique is that their letters have survived. So we do see a few other collections slightly later than they are, such as the Plumpton family, the Stoner family, the Sealy families, and their merchants and landholders too in other places across England. And so we can use that as a way to answer your question. We can kind of compare and control trust. And what's clear is that there is due to the effect of the plague, a loosening of social structures where more and more uh, merchants start to acquire land. So they're certainly in keeping in vein with that kind of social mobilities that's happening at the day. However, it's very clear the Pastons are very strident personalities. They also marry well. Um, Some of the Paston women are coming from the major landholding families around and those arranged marriages really help. And that is part of the culture of the day. But it's without a doubt, without them having furthered their own children through education and being lawyers, they would never have been in those circles in which to marry up. And so we see the insight into their personalities because of their letter is what's unique rather than necessarily the social steps that they're moving through. What can the Pastons tell us about relationships between families at this time? We do see a lot of respect in the letters between family members, particularly between parents and children. And whether you're looking at the medieval letters where you see the sons going off to the University of Cambridge to study law and uh, mothers being concerned about whether they're eating well or, you know, are they are they behaving and actually doing their studies? Some narratives never change across the centuries. So, for example, let's take Agnes Paston, who is the daughter-in-law of our very first Paston, Clement Paston. She marries his son, William, 
Agnes Paston survives William by about 20 years and she becomes the matriarch of the family. So she's super concerned that she gets good marriages for her children. And that's not just for the sons, but also for her daughters as well. But we start to see that as much as we might admire her as being this matriarch, there's actually insights into how she beats her daughter when her daughter Elizabeth Paston doesn't agree to the marriage setup. And so, you know, it's it's there's true family dynamics going on in these letters. And we also see insights into characters and the ways in which the family members related in the day in ways that we might be a bit surprised. So the next generation in the story, the third generation, where we have Margaret Paston marry Agnes's son, John, we see from her will that she she provides for all her children, as you might expect. But we also see her providing for the illegitimate child of her husband, it's clear that he had a relationship outside of the marriage and there is an illegitimate daughter. But she she doesn't provide quite as much money, but she does provide some money. So it's interesting to see those kinds of um, traces of whether people were included in family circles or not. Now, you mentioned Margaret Paston. Now, I think she is probably the most prolific letter writer of the collection and I think she coins a new word captainess can we say that she was quite a formidable character absolutely as you say she coins the word captainess to indicate her role as the captain of the family and she is the mother of John Paston II and John Paston III. She is the one who is instrumental in managing the land holdings and the tenants whenever her husband is off at the law courts. So we get a real insight into estate management through her letters. But she's also really concerned with her neighbours and with making sure that they're well known in gentry circles. And so we see a lot of insight into those features. But perhaps two things are most striking about Margaret Paston's letter writing. One is the sheer vivid quality of her prose. She's an incredibly descriptive writer. Alongside that, she is the one who is so concerned about conserving and protecting all the family letters. So she collects them all. And that was thanks to her that we're able to see the letters today. She also writes the second most famous letter in the whole collection. And surprisingly, it's a shopping list. So we have a medieval shopping list here as well. Yes. Now, a shopping list in itself, is, is fascinating for um, historians. We can sort of see the kinds of trades that are going on in Norfolk at the time. She's also writing to her husband in London. So if she's wanting things that we can't see in Norfolk, eat different types of food and cloth. And so it's interesting from a social history point of view. But what's most interesting is the fact that she writes, can I have some food? Can I have some cloth and crossbows? 
<laughs> and so she, in her shopping list, she's actually asking for crossbows. And this is because she is defending the family home, Gresham Castle, from the Duke of Suffolk, who's trying to take over their land. And so alongside needing to fix the children's clothes, she also needs to have some crossbows and belts in order to be able to defend the family home. And it's not what you expect as you're reading the shopping list. And isn't it true that Margaret Patton had to defend quite a few of the family homes? Yes, she's very active and it's exactly why we call her the Captainess. So, for example, in 1465, Suffolk's men attack again and destroyed the Hillsdon Manor House and Lodge. And we can see from one of Margaret Paston's letters um, the kinds of conversations that she has with her husband. So, on the 27th of October, 1465, Margaret writes to her husband... I was at Helsden last Thursday to see the place, and no one seeing it would not think it a terrible sight. They made your tenants at Helsden and Drayton help break down the walls of the house and lodge, against their wills, but they dare not refuse. I have comforted your tenants in Drayton and Helsden as best I can. The Duke's men ransacked the church and took everything of value, both ours and the tenants, leaving little, and they stood on the altar and ransacked the images and took away everything they could find. They threw the parson out of the church until they had finished and ransacked all the local houses five or six times. Wow, that's quite an image, isn't it? So I think it's quite unusual to have a woman's voice, particularly from this period. But are there any difficulties we have in actually trying to perhaps unsilence them, uncover them? Yes, there's one key thing. If you think about writing family letters, you send the letters and the question is, do you always get the letters that come back? That's the problem. We see a lot of letters in the collection where they've been written to someone, but we don't see the recipient's response. So that's the first thing. But also, family letters follow on from oral conversations So that thing you were talking about last week or that item you brought me last week is something that we keep seeing in the letters and we're like, what does this mean? So there are those curiosities in terms of any male and female authors of the letters. But something else we need to recognise is that the Pastons were not writing the letters themselves. They often have scribes. And of course, uh, as members of the household or the local vicar sometimes, these scribes are male. And some of the Pastons do write, some of the male sons do write. So, for instance, Margaret Paston's sons write the letters for her. But if you have the role of a scribe, intervening, particularly if they've got a London accent compared to a Norfolk accent, we start to see their voices as much as we do the women's voices. So that's the the whole process of letter writing is important to recognise. On top of that, a lot of the female characters, we only see the brothers or the husbands writing about them. So we know some of the female characters, but only through the voices of the husbands or the sons. Now, I think there's probably one letter attributed to one of the women of the household that we probably should, we should definitely talk about. And this is a letter from Marjorie Bruce to John Paston. And it's celebrated as the first Valentine's letter. But is it, necessarily what we would expect today. 
Yes and no. <laughs> um, yes, we. it is absolutely. Marjorie Bruce is writing to John Paston III for Valentine's Day, and she describes him as her right well-beloved Valentine. And if you let me just read out just a few lines, and I'm going to do it in the Middle English because I think that the tone and the flavour of her writing comes across well. And I'm going to suggest that this does sound like a love letter when we first read it. So she writes to John, On to me recht well beloved Valentine, John Paston, squire, be this bill delivered. Recht reverent and worshipful, and my recht well beloved Valentine, I recommend me unto you full heartedly, desiring to hear of your welfare, which I beseech. Almighty God, long for to preserve unto his pleasure and your heart's desire. And if it pleases you to hear of my welfare, I am not in good health of body nor of heart, nor shall I be till I hear from you. Now this this is sounding very romantic, isn't it? She's lovesick for him. She goes on to say, For there knows no creature what pain that I endure, and even on the pain of death I would reveal no more. And my lady, my mother, hath laboured the matter to my father full diligently, but she can no more get than you already know of, for which God knoweth I am full sorry. And this statement, that is the rub. Because we're talking about a diary. That's what the mother has been attempting to negotiate. And John Paston is not happy with the diary that Marjorie Brew's family are offering for her. So this is a petition. As much as it's a love letter, it's a petition letter by Marjorie. She wants to become his wife. Um, she wants to, to the marriage um, to be arranged, but they're not really given enough money. So what does she do? She petitions him. But then she goes on and almost says, ah, but isn't it more than just money? She says, but if you love me, as I trust verily that you do, you will not leave me therefore. For even if you had not half the livelihood that you have, for to do the greatest labour that any woman alive might, I would not forsake you. And if you command me to keep me true wherever I go, indeed, I will do all my mich you to love and never any more else. And if my friends say that I do amiss, they shall not stop me from doing so. My heart bids evermore to love you truly over all earthly things. And if they be never so angry, I trust it shall be better in time coming. No more to you at this time, but the Holy Trinity have you in keeping. And I beseech that this bill be not seen by any non-earthly creature, save only yourself. And this letter was written at Topcroft with full heavy heart. Be your own Marjorie Bruce. That's quite something. It gives you such a picture of the relationship, but also the priorities, the ups and downs, how they saw each other. Absolutely. And there's a follow-on letter from this where it becomes even more business-like and transactional with the actual details of the diary discussed between the two. And then when we put it in the context as well, we see that Marjorie is in her late teens, early 20s. John Paston, by contrast, is in his early 30s and he has a bit of a reputation of seeing who might be his wife, let's put it that way, and a bit of a reputation about failed marriage negotiations. 
So Marjorie knows if she's going to bag this husband, she has to persuade him both by pulling on the heartstrings and to create a financial deal and an interesting package. And what's particularly interesting is that it is her mother and John Paston's mother that get them to come together on Elm Hill on Valentine's Day and actually say to the husbands, look, let's get this deal sorted once and for all. So in talking about strong female figures, we see it very much in play in this particular Paston story. It gives you such an insight And I think if in talking about stories that play on your emotions, Patterns actually lived through the plague years. With us having recently faced the COVID pandemic, do we perhaps see any similarities? How did the Patterns respond to this as a threat? Yes, the Pastons are writing right at the time of the Great Plague and the of course all as we've seen with COVID, all the different variations and mutations that happen afterwards. And we see a great concern about illness and about infectious illness right throughout the three hundred years of the of the letters. But it's interesting because we can turn to the letters and we can also turn to the buildings that they lived in to see the impact. And I'm going to read just one sentence out from one of the Paston letters that I had read many times before COVID came along. And it was only when COVID came along, I kind of thought, oh gosh, I really get what's going on here now. So this is uh, John Paston, the father, writing to his son, John Paston III, in September 1471. So we're only talking uh, roughly a century after the Great Plague, but throughout this time, the population in Norfolk has been devastated by many waves of plagues, and this is particularly at the height of another one of those bubonic plague waves. And he says... I pray you, send me word if any of our friends or well-wishers be dead. For I fear that there is great death in Norwich, and in other borrower towners in Norfolk. For I ensure you, it is the most universal death that ever I wist in England. And it just really struck me, first of all, the great concern is about family and friends, the well-wishers. And then it's about, you know, what's happening all around us across Norfolk. But then we talk about it's actually happening in all of England, and then we get the universal. And I think we now understand that, that this is not just somebody being hyper-anxious, but it's that sense that it's happening right on our doorsteps, but also all around us as well. So there's a lot of echoes between the experiences because we see letters... We can use the Paston letters, and historians have, to chart different waves of illness. We see the dates of the letters. We can see three of the Paston family members die from plague, and we see evidence of that. We can see them anxious to get treacle because they think that's going to help cure them. Um, There's this special treacle from abroad that they can only get in London. But they're very anxious about the doctors because they're very concerned, actually, so-and-so went and visited the doctor and now they're sick. A bit of echoes there about the vaccine people who who weren't very confident about the vaccines to begin with in our days. But we also see that need to run away from the infection. They thought the infection was in the air, of course, through science. We now know it was carried through the fleas on the rats, but they thought it was the putrid air. And so therefore they try to run away from Norwich and go off to Great Yarmouth and, and further afield in Norfolk to escape from the plague. 
those are the obvious things in the letters about the plague. But there's also things that I think we've got more of an insight into now because of what we've been through. So we see a report on one of the children from the school about the learning that the child is doing and the anxieties of the mother as to whether they're managing the homeschooling well enough. I think that's going to ring a bell with many of our listeners. But also we see a great desire to focus on activity. Now, it's not football, it's jousting and different things like that. But also fashion and colour. We see a desire, there's a lot of discussion about the colour in different clothes and and how that can, if you like, we would call it now a well-being boost. So yes, as much as the letters are different, we can also see the humans that are going through a really infectious pandemic and the kind of consequences that it has on daily life. Of course, the other major socio-political cultural event that is going on, particularly for the medieval pastors, they see the War of the Roses. And then later, obviously, there's the English Civil War as well. How about these great events? How did they affect the pastors? And I guess, can we see any insights into how society reacted? There are definitely insights into these big, great political turmoils that are going on. In the medieval letters during the Wars of the Roses, we have John Paston II and his brother John Paston III fighting for the Lancastrians at the Battle of Barnet in 1471. And John III also fought for the Tudor King Henry VII in 1487 at Stoke, which is the final battle of the war. But perhaps not surprisingly, because they're in battle, we don't hear that much about the actual activities or events going on. And what I think pervades the letters even more so is a general sense of lawlessness and violence that's happening between the different factions. So we get brawls happening outside Norwich Cathedral with the Pastons, but we also see in the works of the Pastons a lot about the Duke of Suffolk, who is on the opposing side, a powerful East Anglian nobleman, and he is the one who claimed the manors of Helsden and Drayton. But four years later also comes the siege of Caister Castle, another of the Paston homes, which incidentally was a bit controversial because Sir John Fastolf, the cousin of Margaret Paston, bequeathed the castle to John Paston. At least that's what John Paston claims happened, that there was a change of will on Sir John Fastolf's bed as he was dying. And of course, how do you verify that? So the Duke of Suffolk doesn't really like this idea that that the Pastons are going to get the Caister Castle instead. So to what extent is this really about the Wars of Roses or is this about land acquisition? You know, it's, it's the personal narratives within the Wars of the Roses. And so we have with the Caister Castle, another example of the Duke of Suffolk who went and claimed Helston and Drayton. This time it's the Duke of Norfolk claiming Caister Castle. And as much as it shows us insight to the Wars of the Roses, it also raises questions. Because did the Paston brothers' growing allegiance to the Lancastrian Earl of Oxford lead to the Yorkist Duke's attack, the Duke of Norfolk's attack on the castle? In other words, was it about an inheritance dispute with Fastolf? Was it about land acquisition? Or was it just that he was annoyed that the Pastons were starting to get friendly with the Earl of Oxford? And so we've got all these different kinds of questions. But what comes clear from the this personal insight into this big political event of the Wars of the Roses. It's about land, but it's also about personal allegiances. 
and who's in combat with who, and it keeps changing. How did these societal events shift their fortunes? It's incredibly important because that's really the key story behind the Paston letters. It's when are they in favour with the king, when are they in favour with the local dukes, or when are they attacking them? And so in the Middle Ages, we see Sir John Paston becoming knighted. And of course, that brings with it prestige, which makes you more likely family that people will want to marry into. But then also we see the moments and times where the Pastons are out of favour and it is a time of lawlessness. So that's why we have the attacks on Caister Castle, which continually goes in and out of the Paston family hands for about 100 years. One moment they own it, the next minute they're being attacked for it. And then we also see the Pastons benefiting from royal favour at court and they actually become incredibly close to these royal circles which help them acquire their fortunes as they hold big positions in the Tudor period such as Admiral Clement Paston who's sort of around 1508 to 1597. He becomes active in both the navy and the army and is actually mentioned by name by the king as being one of his great warriors and he made his fortune by capturing a French ship and exacting a ransom for a French nobleman whom he held prisoner at Caister castle which fortunately the Pastons owned at that time. So you've just touched on the later Pastons there. We said earlier how many letters there are from the medieval Pastons but actually we have almost a collection in itself of these later Pastons. What do we know about the Tudor and Stuart Pastons? We do get insights from the sort of the two major collections by Robert Paston and then later by Lady Catherine Paston as well and we see insights but The other big useful element in the archives are the wills and the land holding agreements, the acquisitions of manors. So we really are able to start to chart their movement across Norfolk as they're developing and holding different lands. We're able to see through leases and petitions and royal appointments, their social climbing and that's happening. So we have one of them becomes the first Earl of Yarmouth, for instance, and we see evidence of their growing social status also through material legacies. So they're, of course, sponsoring a lot of the churches around and they pay for their tombs, many of which still exist in, in the different areas across Norfolk today. So we can use the, all the kinds of documentary evidence alongside the built heritage to see the homes that they're acquiring and losing. And in terms of the story, stories that emerge, we see the ways in which the later Pastons are becoming much more active in these royal court positions and we see them in favour but we also at times see them falling out of favour. So for instance in town just outside of Norwich called Blowfield we have a different line of the Pastons where we have Edward Paston becoming a very well-known figure. There's a magnificent tomb there with his nine children all around the bottom of the tomb but what's important about Edward Paston is he is a Catholic in Protestant times so again playing into these big narratives of the age and what's interesting in the evidence surrounding his life is that he is a major sponsor of 
the two musicians, Bird and Talis at the time. And actually, it's, it's thanks to Edward Paston that we see so much. He had gone off to Spain and got educated as a child there. He came back. He actually teaches the king's daughter um, how to read music. But he is a Catholic, and so we see in his recusant music that he creates himself hidden lyrics revealing his Catholic tendencies. So as much as we like reading the letters, actually, there's, there's, there are other forms of, of evidence as well that show us some of the characters in these Paston families. That was Karen Smith, Associate Professor of Literature at the University of East Anglia. Karen is also the co-director of the Paston Footprints Project. For a deep dive into the Paston family and to read their letters in both Middle and Modern English, head over to thisispaston.co.uk. Or if you prefer a more active route into the past, then check out pastonfootprints.co.uk, where you can follow heritage walks across the places where the Paston family lived. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.